0: You may be seated. It is good to be in the Lord's house this morning. Amen? Amen. I'll tell you what, sometimes I'll be honest with you, I don't even want to hear the preacher. I just want to keep on singing. I think, Alan, I have to come about up here, don't I? To keep that feedback from happening. Okay. Good morning, everybody. I'm so glad that everyone is here. Um, what's that? Did I miss it? Oh, somebody, I thought I heard somebody say something over here. Glad to see everybody. My son said that. Thank you. Good morning. Um, I am so grateful. I know that there were a lot of people that were out last week. So so glad to see you all back here. I see several faces. I see a couple faces I don't know. So um, that could just be that I don't know you. Or you may be a visitor. I don't know. But regardless, glad you're here and uh, welcome to be a part of our family here at the congregation. And I do want to say, um, sometimes I forget that we are live. And so I want to say hello and greetings to everybody who's watching at home. Um, I, uh, I had a sign-up sheet, and, and uh, where's my clicker? I just forgot to get my clicker. So, Oh, Craig, you got it. I had a sign-up sheet that I made uh, this last week for... Thank you very much. Is it on? Um, for the discipleship training that we talked about last week, um, I am a little bit behind. I had meant to get a text message and a call out to everybody so we could try to set a time. Um, so what we're going to do is I'm going to uh, ask one more time, if you are interested in being a part of these discipleship groups, they are, they are, they are not long-term. They're one-off groups. Um, we will meet probably sometime next week, okay, for about an hour and a half, and that'll be our first meeting, and it's just going to be simple. We're going to do some devotional time. It's going to be some quiet time before the Lord. We'll practice 95.5 time, and uh, so if you want to be a part of that, I don't have the sign-up sheet because I forgot to bring it, unfortunately, so just see me after church, okay, and make sure you get your name on that, on that list. Um, over the course of the last few weeks, we've been talking about outreach, and um, I, just in real quick bullet point form, so far, what I wanted us to understand, just a few things. Number one, that, that outreach is a lot bigger than just a door-knocking campaign or uh, having a program at the church and inviting somebody to the church, and I think we all know that, but what I wanted us to do is to have a really big 40,000-foot view of what outreach means to the Lord. And when you go back and you put outreach in its biblical context, what you find is that outreach is a continuation of the ministry that Jesus started 2,000 years ago. So when we talk about outreach, what we're talking about is joining Jesus and his mission to take the gospel to the world. Now, if you remember, we talked about Jesus was actually just fulfilling the mission that God had given the Israelites all along. And so the first point that I wanted to make about three Sundays ago is that that outreach is a continuation of God's mandate for his people to be a light to the nations. That was the first thing that I wanted to to mention. And then two Sundays ago, we talked about Matthew chapter 28, and and basically I just wanted to kind of plant the seed in you to to recognize the fact that Jesus did things a little differently than we do today 2,000 uh, years later. Um, we build churches, we have programs, we have ministers, we um, kind of have more of a uh, of a, a corporate type atmosphere, if you will. And what we do is we typically will invite people to come here. But we recognize the fact that in Matthew chapter 28, Jesus didn't say bring. What did he say? He said go. And so we talked about the differences and what that means. Now, for this morning, let me ask you a question. We're going to build upon that. And and I told you last time that I wanted to ask the question, how did Jesus make disciples? I want to ask you a painfully obvious question, and you can answer with a painfully obvious answer. Did Jesus do a good job making disciples? Man, he did. Takes 12 guys, nobodies. He pours his life into them. He teaches them his ways. More than that, he models for them what discipleship looks like because he lives the very things that he teaches. I love you too, Caleb. Boys, I love you all, okay? I do, I do. Um, But he pours his life into them. He teaches them his ways. He takes them on ministry opportunities so that they have an opportunity to actually do the very same things that Jesus did. And these 12 men turn the world upside down. I mean, literally to the point that today history has changed because of the ministry of these 12 guys. So do you think Jesus probably knows a thing or two about discipleship? Now, I say that because there's all kinds of ways to get people to come in the church. I told you a long time ago, I love outreach, man. I love evangelism. I've done all kinds of stuff in the past to try to get people to come to church. We've done all kinds of campaigns, man. We've put on shows. We've brought concerts, you know, um, Jewel Miller film strips. We've done the doorknock. We've done everything. We've done all kinds of stuff to bring people in. But for the last 20 years of my life, I have seen diminishing results with those things. I just don't see a lot of people coming to church anymore, not like it used to be. And I'll be honest with you, as a minister, it gets frustrating. Because here we are, man, we're we on fire for the Lord. We, we preach and preach and preach and preach and preach. And and, and we want to see people come to the church. But, but, but by and large, and, and I've got lots of ministry friends. We talk all the time. Most every single one of my minister friends, we all deal with the same issues. The churches are all on a very steady, slow decline. And, and it's hard because church, as we've been... Trained to do it in the West in the 21st century is not seeming to work anymore in terms of getting to know new people and bringing people in. Would you agree with that? Okay, by the way, I think that exposes part of the problem. I can't tell you how many minister friends that I have that live in fear every single day of losing their job because the elders have brought them in and secretly they've told them, Hey, listen, um. Look, the, the church is going down and, and your pay is tied to that. So if you don't get the numbers up, probably have to cut your pay. Or worse yet, we're going to have to let you go. You know how hard it is to be a minister and live under that? And I think that's part of the problem. But we'll talk about more about that in a moment. Because I think what we've done is, again, we've taken this corporate mindset and we think, hey, we've paid the preacher. He's the professional. He's the guy that's going to do it. Right? Instead of the biblical model, which is a good minister equips the people in the congregation to be able to do these things. And that's what these discipleship training groups are all going to be about. We're going to do discipleship training groups in reach or outreach. Uh, we'll have some for uh, in reach and we'll have some for outreach. Okay. Um, I was looking for my water. It's not over there. Okay. Okay. Um, okay. But churches are in decline, and over the past 15 or or, or 20 years or so, I and a lot of other preachers and ministers have been asking the question, do we need to rethink evangelism? Do we need to think about it maybe a a little bit differently? Because I mentioned to you a few weeks ago about some movements that are happening all across Africa. They're happening across Asia. They're happening across India. Um, They're happening all over the, the Middle East. But these are what are called disciple-making movements. And I had a chance to meet a man in 2012, and he literally changed my life forever. I already told you I was interested in outreach, and I was frustrated by the the sharp decline that I saw that was happening. And he told me a story that just about blew me away. Thank you, Craig. God bless you. I have a super dry throat this morning. God bless you, Dad. Thanks, Caleb. But he told me this story. That just blew me away, and he said that um, about 15 years prior to him, this is 2012, he said there were a few ministers that got together, and one was a Baptist, one was a Presbyterian. It almost sounded like the beginning of the Restoration Movement, honestly. I mean, it sounded like the same kind of story, and these preachers were all discussing the same problem. They said the churches are in decline, and we don't know what to do. And they said, everything that we're trying, everything that we're doing is not working. We're not getting people in the door. We're not retaining people. Uh, the, 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 we've got, we'll get some that'll come in and get baptized. But then out the back door, you've got several that are leaving. And so they decided that they were going to go back to the Bible. They're going to fast, and pray. They were going to seek God for his wisdom. And they were going to go back to the Gospels. And they just wanted to watch and see how did Jesus make disciples. And, and, and if they duplicated that model... Would it make a difference? And so that's what they did. They fasted. They prayed. They started listening to the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit started showing them some things. They went out. God showed them some people that they could sit down and have their first discipleship group with. And from day one, they did what the scriptures taught, which is train the folks to be disciples so that when they mature in Christ, they too can go out and do what? Make disciples. And so that when they mature, they too can go out and do what? make disciples. It is a viral movement built into the system. Well, guess what happened? It exploded. And in the first four years of this movement, over 4,000 home churches were planted all across the northern part of Africa. And that that just really impacted me when I heard it and then I went to a conference. I've, I've been to several of these discipleship movement trainings because, again, I see what's happening over there. And, and, and Augustine, I'll be honest with you, man, it's like, I want some. I want some of this, right? Because today, after about 20 years of these discipleship-making movements that are happening all over the, 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 the world, there are now tens of thousands of churches all over the place over there. And it is growing like wildfire. Now, we don't hear about it much over here, but over there, it's happening like crazy. So I bring all this up this morning because even though the church is in fast decline here in the West, in the East, the church is booming. And, and I've even seen in just the last few years, there are some churches I know of in Africa that have started to send African missionaries over to America. Because God has given them a specific message to talk to the Americans about. And I heard one of those messages last, uh, about, about 10 years ago. Next Sunday, I plan to share some of it with you. I plan to share some of a message that was spoken to Americans from an African missionary. I think it's going to blow you away. But the gospel's being preached. And let me tell you something. Now, you may not, it may be hard to believe. But I want to tell you right now, the stories that are currently coming out of the Middle East and Africa especially sounds almost just like the book of Acts. The gospel is being preached. And as they are taking that gospel into new territories, guess what's happening? There are people that are being healed. There are people that are having demons cast out of them. And would you believe me if I told you that I've heard stories of people even being raised from the dead? Now listen, I know that that is hard to swallow for Americans living in the West, but I have talked to these people, I have looked them in the eye, I have listened to their heart, and I know that they are telling the truth. So it's my hope and it's, it's my prayer that over time that maybe we too can learn some of these things, That that maybe we too can can go back and and learn a little bit more about making disciples the way that Jesus made disciples. And who knows? Maybe this will be the congregation that lights the spark, that sets ablaze a new movement that happens right here in America. I studied disciple-making movements for um, about seven years, and I tried to start them in three congregations, and in three congregations, I was shut down every single time because it's different. It's, it's not a Bible class. It's, it's, it's just a different way of doing things. And, and also, too, you're taking the church out there as opposed to trying to do everything in the building. Last year, Tiffany, two years ago, she, Tiffany and I had the opportunity because we were the youth ministers again at the church that we were at, and we decided to implement disciple-making movement groups in the youth group. And The elders let it work for about six weeks, and it started to grow. I mean, it started to blow up in about six weeks, and then it got shut down again. So I know from limited experience that it can work. It works here, okay? Now, so with that said, we already know that our mission as Christians is to go out and make disciples. So here's what I want us to do. Take your Bibles, and we're going to open them up, and we're going to ask the question, how did Jesus make disciples? disciples. And and then I want to ask the question, does it matter that we seek to model the way we make disciples after the way he made disciples? Because there's a lot of people that say, well, that doesn't matter. We just do what we think we need to do. I don't believe that anymore. I think that there was a methodology that Jesus used that was divinely inspired, and it's a methodology that you and I can learn from. Okay, so let's get into this a little bit. Now, before we answer that. I want us to take a little look at the life of Jesus first because what you're going to find find is is that Jesus himself is a model for the Christian life. Does that make sense? Let me say it a different way. Jesus lived his life as a human being as the way a human being should have lived their lives. The Bible says that Jesus is the new Adam, right? The first Adam messed up. The first Adam sinned, and we inherited that. So our lives looked a lot like the first Adam. But Jesus came as a trailblazer to show us what living a human life is supposed to look like. And so let's look at a couple things and see if we can draw some parallels to the life of Jesus and our lives as Christians. Now, if you remember, Jesus' ministry started where? It started with John the Baptist at the Jordan River. So here's John. He's baptizing in the Jordan River, and his message is very simple. He says, repent. Let's see if I can have it up on the screen here. Okay, Matthew chapter 3, verse 2. His message was very simple. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now, there's a lot we could say about the kingdom of heaven, but I want to make this one little simple point. The word kingdom in Greek is basileia. And it does not mean a physical location for a kingdom. What it means is a deliberate acknowledgement of royal authority. Isn't that neat? A deliberate acknowledgement of royal authority. So if Jesus literally is who he says he is, if he is the king of kings and he is your king and you recognize the fact that God's kingdom has drawn near, well then what is the natural response for those of us who have run away from God our entire lives? What's the call? To come back, right? That's what the word repentance means. Repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. The king and his kingdom have come near. I'm not In right standing with the king, I'm not living my life according to this kingdom with its values and its mores and its and its its morals. And so I'm going this way in life, and so I'm going to stop. I'm going to change my mind, change my thinking, like the prodigal son, and I'm going to come back. See, that's the idea of repentance. Then in Matthew chapter three, verses eleven through twelve. John announces the arrival of the Messiah. He says, I baptize you with water for repentance. But after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. And he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So John says when this one comes, when the Messiah comes, it will be evident that the kingdom of God is near. Why? Because it will come with manifestations of the kingdom, right? Right? It's not just words only, it's words and power. And the way that you know that the kingdom of God has come near is that you begin to experience manifestations of his presence, right? Through the Holy Spirit. And then you know the story. Jesus comes to be baptized. And uh, I see, I didn't write it up there. Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 16. And that confuses John, doesn't it? Because John says, wait a minute, I know you're the Messiah. And you're you're better than I am. You're bigger than I am. It should be the other way around. You should be baptizing me. But remember what Jesus says. He says to him, he says, we're going to do this, John, because we need to fulfill all righteousness. Now, when Jesus was baptized, remember what happens? It says the Holy Spirit comes down out of heaven like a dove, and it rests upon him. Have you ever asked yourself the question, why was Jesus baptized? Did he need it? What's baptism for? Baptism that we know is for the remission of sins, right? But Jesus doesn't have any sins. So the question is, why is he baptized? To fulfill all righteousness. But what does that mean? See, here's the picture. Jesus is the trailblazer for you and I. When we first come to know Christ and we come to that conviction that he is the Messiah, that he is who he says he is, what is the next response to be a disciple? Be baptized, right? And then what happens after baptism? You receive what? The Holy Spirit. So again, Jesus is a picture. He is a demonstration of how you and I are supposed to live our lives. Now, after Jesus receives the Holy Spirit, what happens? The Bible says that the Spirit drives Jesus into the desert, specifically so he can be tempted by the devil. And that's where he stays for 40 days and 40 nights, being tempted by Satan. And the Bible tells us that after 40 days, Jesus becomes hungry. Would have taken me about four hours. But it took Jesus 40 days, right? So after 40 days, he becomes hungry. And it's then that Satan decides to make his move against Jesus. And what does he do? In Matthew chapter 4, verse 4, he says, look, here's some stones. You've got the power. Why don't you just do it? Take these stones and turn them in the bread. Why not? Nobody's going to know anyway, right? What does Jesus say in reply? Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. Now watch this. This is significant because if we're looking at this text as a model for you and me to be a disciple of God, then what is the lesson here for our discipleship? Obedience, right? Obedience to the word of God is absolutely necessary to be a disciple of the Lord, Next, Satan tries to get Jesus to shortcut the cross and cause a miracle to happen at the temple. And he even tries to justify it by taking a scripture out of context. But what does Jesus do? He responds and he says that we as humans are not to put God to the test. We are supposed to do God's will, not try to get him to do our will. And then finally, he comes to the third temptation. And he shows him all the kingdoms of the earth he says, okay, look, let's put all the cards on the table. We all, we all know that you're going to be a king and you're going to have a kingdom. But I tell you what, I own them all anyway. I'll give you every one of them. Every kingdom of the earth. I'll give you Babylon. I'll give you Assyria. I'll give you Rome. I'll give you the United States of America. I'll give you the European Union. I'll give you Russia. I'll give you all the nations of the earth. All you got to do is bow down and worship me. And what does Jesus do? He refuses. And he quotes scripture, and he says, we are to worship God alone. And at that moment, the devil leaves, and the Bible says that he'll come back in a more opportune time. Now, what is the point of the whole story? The point, I think, is simple. When it comes to being a disciple, one of the most important things that you and I are going to have to learn is to trust God at his every single word. Every word. Because if you listen to what's, what he's saying here, is that one of the most important things that we have to learn about hearing God and, and obeying God is being able to recognize and acknowledge his authority in every single aspect of our lives. Jesus says, listen, one of the things that we've got to learn to be a follower of Christ is when we follow him, we have to model our lives after him. And for Jesus, obeying God was more important than even eating food. That's, that's amazing. More important than even eating food. So, obedience as a disciple is absolutely essential. Now, notice that the Bible tells us that after Jesus fasted for 40 days and after he okay, overcame the devil's temptations, it says in John chapter 4, verse 14, that Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. Now, what do you think that he was up there praying about for those 40 days? Now, Let me give you a conjecture, okay? Because here's what's going to happen. Jesus is up there on that mountain. He's praying and fasting for 40 days. He's seeking God, right? The Bible says that after he's tempted by the devil, he comes down. Where is he? He's down in the south Judah where John was baptizing. The Bible says that he goes back up to Galilee, and the very next story that we have in the Bible is he chooses his disciples. I'm going to argue that what he was doing up on that mountain for 40 days as he was fasting and praying for God's direction for the next step in his ministry. God, show me the people. Show me the right ones. Show me the ones that you have on your heart that you are already working on and show me who they are so I can train them to be my disciples. I think that's what he was most likely doing. And so all three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they tell us that once... Jesus gets back to Galilee. He chooses four guys, four fishermen. Peter, Andrew, James, and John. Those are the first disciples. And did you notice he did not choose people who were wealthy? He did not choose people who were notable. He didn't go into the synagogue and get the rabbis. While he was in Jerusalem, he didn't even have a conversation with a Pharisee. Didn't go to the Sanhedrin. He never single one time tapped the shoulder of a Sadducee. What did he do? He went to the everyday common folk like you and me. That should give us some encouragement. It does me. I tell you, because I'm just about everyday common as it gets, brother. You know what I'm saying? Nobody. And so right from the very start, Jesus is training a group of people to continue his ministry and expand his ministry to learn, to teach what he taught, to learn to do what he did, And that leads us to the next thing that I want to mention. And that is that Jesus's ministry was not simply preaching and teaching. In other words, the ministry of the kingdom of God is not an intellectual gospel. It is a supernatural gospel. And when you look at what Jesus taught, he taught the nearness of the kingdom of God. Well, how close is the kingdom of God? Well, it's so close... That when the kingdom of God gets near, people start to to get well. (laughs) They heal. Uh, When the kingdom of God gets near, demons have a hard time with that. And so demons start to shriek and and cry out. And, And so there's this power there and you see it manifest time and time again. And so he demonstrated this closeness by his work. Through healing all kinds of diseases and sickness, by freeing people from demonic oppression, in some cases, even raising the dead. Have you ever thought about the fact that The gospel of Jesus Christ is holistic in nature. It heals the mind, it heals the soul, and it heals the body. It heals the mind through his preaching, it heals the soul through his teaching, and it heals the body through his healing, amen? But why does Jesus do this? He does this because this is the evidence of the nearness of the kingdom, of God extending his rule over the things that Satan has once taken. The Bible says that God is taking them back as this kingdom is going out, into all the earth. And so no doubt as the Spirit demonstrated this nearness of the kingdom through healing and casting out demons, this opened up all kinds of doors for Jesus to be able to tell other people about himself. Because it validated his word. It showed that he had power and authority. In fact, this is what the Bible says in the book of Luke chapter 4, verses 36 through 37. It says, all the people were amazed and they said to each other, what words are these? What words are these? What, with authority and power, he gives orders to impure spirits. And they obey, he says. They come out. And the news about him spread throughout the surrounding area. Now, Matthew gives us the longest sampling of the teachings of Jesus. And I told you a few weeks ago that this is actually not a sermon. The Sermon on the Mount, what we call the Sermon on the Mount, it's not a sermon. It's a collection of the teachings of Jesus, and it was used in the first century as a manual for discipleship. And so in the first century, when they had their discipleship groups and they were getting together, guess what they were studying? They were studying the teachings of Christ. They were modeling themselves after Jesus Christ. See, one of the reasons why I think we struggle today is over the course of the last 2,000 years, Christian leaders have placed more of an emphasis on creeds and doctrines and what we believe about this or what we believe about that, and we have woefully underemphasized the actual teachings of Jesus Christ. Yeah. Let me tell you what we did theologically in the churches of Christ. Theologically in the churches of Christ, here's, kind of, here's how the mindset went. Well, we're a New Testament church. Old Testament's been done away with. And we've got to find the dividing line. Well, where does the Old Testament end? Where does the New Testament begin? And so the, the, the thinking went like this. Well, the church started on the day of Pentecost. So everything from that day forward, that's what we obey. And everything before that, watch this, even Jesus, even the teachings of Christ, historically we've said that's Old Testament. We don't really pay a lot of attention to it anymore. And that may not have been the way it was in your church, but that's the way it was in mine. That Literally, we threw out the teachings of Christ, because we said that they're Old Testament. So what do you think happens when we focus entirely on what the church did as opposed to what Jesus taught? And see, where we went wrong is is that we tried to find the right pattern to do church in the right way instead of realizing that the first century church in the book of Acts was just trying to be disciples of Jesus and follow his teachings. So maybe that's where we need to go back. Maybe we need to revisit the actual teachings of Christ and see how to better be disciples ourselves and seek to make disciples the way that he made disciples. Now, we don't have time to get into all the things that Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount, but the Sermon on the Mount has been described as the constitution of the kingdom. Because in that sermon is all the values and the attitudes and the lifestyle that Jesus expected his followers to live. I tell you what, if you don't have a Bible study right now going on, just take the Sermon on the Mount and, and use that and look at your life and see, am I living a discipled life? And it'll give you a good idea. Now, these are things that Jesus lived, Sermon on the Mount, and these are the things that he expected us to live as well. Now, before the disciples started following Jesus, again, remember, they were, they were just regular, average, everyday people. They, they earned their money. Some of them owned businesses. Um, And when they were called to follow Jesus, they left every one of those things behind. They traveled with Jesus. They slept where he slept. They ate what he ate. Um, They heard him preach and teach. They helped with all the mundane tasks that would have been associated with a traveling ministry. And then, you know, basically, here's what they did. They just spent a lot of time with Jesus, right? They spent a lot of time with Jesus, learning what he taught and doing what he did. Now, at some point down the road, I don't know how long it was, maybe a year, because we know that the entire ministry of Jesus was only three and a half years long. But at some point down the road, maybe about a year or so later, in Matthew chapter 9, we come to a point where Jesus decides that it's time to send his disciples out. See, we know the Great Commission, right? That's Matthew 28. But there's also another one called the Limited Commission, and this is where Jesus is kind of, uh, you know what, when when you have an apprentice and you kind of give him a trial run, (laughs) you know, you're showing him what to do a little bit. Well, that's exactly what Jesus does. And it occurs in Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 through 38. Listen to this. It says, Jesus went through all the towns and the villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into the harvest field. So Jesus knows that the needs out there are great. And believe it or not, they're too big for him to fulfill by himself because he's a man, right? And so God chooses to to bring us into the equation, so to speak. He chooses to include us in the. This mission. And so he's choosing disciples, followers of his, to assist him in meeting the needs of the people. And so he says in verse 38 Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send workers into his harvest. What he did, right? Remember? Remember? 40 days, 40 nights. What is he doing? I think he's up there praying, Lord, send workers into the harvest. He goes up to Galilee, and guess what God does? He sends in workers for the harvest. He trains them. He teaches them. He sends them out. Now it's time for them to do the same thing. And the first thing He tells them to do before you start engaging in ministry work, what do you do? Pray for God to send more. Because the Holy Spirit knows the person whose heart is ready to hear. We don't, but He does. So pray That God reveals them to you. And what does he tell them to do? He gives them a set of instructions for them to do their ministry. And guess what? It's exactly the same thing that he did in his life and ministry. He tells them to begin with prayer. He says you are to rely 100% on the Holy Spirit. Don't worry about provisions because you're doing God's work. Don't you think God knows what you need? So you trust in God's provision. And he tells them to go into a town and find a person of peace. Now, Next week, I'm going to tell you what a person of peace is. You may have never heard this before, but I'm not going to get into it this morning. But he says, find a person of peace, somebody who will welcome you into their home and welcome the message. He says, if that happens, that's where you stay. Don't go anywhere else. It's God appointed. If they don't listen, what does he say do? He says, shake the dust off your feet, move on to somewhere else. Why? Because there's someone else who will listen at some point. And so he tells them these things and if they don't find a person go somewhere else. He says they are to build relationships and carry out the same ministry by serving the needs of the people. How did they serve the needs of the people? Through healing, through casting out demons, and through even raising the dead. Look at this. Matthew chapter or Luke chapter 9 verses 1 through 6. When Jesus had called the 12 together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all the demons and to cure diseases, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. And he told them, take nothing for the journey. No staff, no bag, no bread, no money, no extra shirt. And whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that town. And if people don't welcome you, leave their town, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. And so they set out, and they went from village to village, proclaiming the good news and what? Healing. The validation of the kingdom, the nearness of the kingdom, went along with them. Now, that leads us then to the text that I really, really, really want to focus on that we don't have time for. I said this week, Terry, I'm going to give them a cliffhanger, okay? So I'm going to give you a cliffhanger. But what we're going to do, because of time, is we're going to wrap up this morning. I want to point to one thing in this text And then next week, we're going to look at this text a little bit more in depth. Next week, we're going to revisit it one more time, and we're going to conclude. I'm going to lay a big picture. We're we're building the the scaffolding, if you will. Next week, I want to give you the big picture, the, the model, if you will, of how Jesus made disciples. But I think we've seen a lot of it so far, haven't we? Jesus leads by prayer. That's key. That's essential. He relies on the Holy Spirit um, he relies on God to open up doors for the message to be preached. He doesn't force it. He relies on God. Jesus is very attentive to the needs of the people, and he tries to serve those needs any chance he gets. And he performs miracles. He validates the message that the kingdom is near by the power and authority of the presence of that very same kingdom. And now here Jesus has modeled these same things with his disciples and now for the first time he leads them out. He leads them out to preach the same things that he preached, to do the same things that he did and you want to know what the result is? Chapter 10 verse 1 After this after what? After sending them out, they come back after this the Lord appointed 72 You ever wondered where the 72 came from? The 72 came from the ministry of the 12 when they went out. They went out and they brought 72 back. That's a good return on your investment, isn't it? The Lord appointed 72 others and he did what? He sent them out. Sent them out two by two ahead of him to every town and every place where he was about to go. Okay. One thing I I hope that you're seeing and I'm going to stop here, is that you and I have a purpose. We have a calling to do this. It's not just my job. It is my job to help you in this. But collectively, this is our mission together. Right? And, and so I want, to, I want to close here, and I just want us to, I want us to, I want us to daydream a little bit for a moment. Okay? Um, hypothetically, let's say we do this. Let's say that we make discipleship a key ingredient here at the Eastside family, okay? How many people would you say are here this morning? I know our numbers are down. Terry, 80 or so, maybe, if that. Okay. uh, Yes. I'll stretch the numbers a little bit. Okay, 80 people or so. What if, just what if, what if we all collectively decided that we are all going to um, go to pray, we're going to fast and pray, um, we're going we're gonna to ask the Holy Spirit to reveal uh, to us some faces, some names of people that, 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 that need to hear the gospel, and we are going to collectively agree as a body of Christ here at the Side family to seek to bring one person to Christ in the next year. One. That's not many. One. If that's the case, and every single one of us, and we just said there's about 80 of us here or so, give or take, then that means next year how many folks would be here? Simple math. Come on. 160. Now, let's say after that, we did it again. How many would be here? 240. Somebody doesn't know their math very well. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I understand. I'm teasing you. Uh, uh, 180. Okay. What about the next year? What about the next year? Okay. Drain with me. What about five years from now? What would that number be? A little bit more than that, one thousand two hundred and eighty people. Can we get that many in here? We could. Okay. Listen, at the end of the day, I know it's not about numbers, but the only way that we can get the numbers up at this church is if we all join in and do the work. So. Maybe we need to listen to this more. Maybe we need to rethink some evangelism techniques. Maybe we just need to go back and do what Jesus did and start doing these things. Why? Because it's not about the numbers. It's because you and I have a message that Snyder needs to hear. I don't care how many churches are here. There's a quite a few churches for a small town of this size, but I drive these roads every single day, and I guarantee you there are people out there that are dying in sin right now who don't even know it, but they, they, that we have a message that they need to hear. So here's my prayer as we close. Matthew 9, 38. Jesus tells his disciples, ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. And that's what we're going to do right now as we pray. Father God in heaven, we see the needs in this world. and, And God, we don't have the ability to change things on a world scale but we do have the ability to change things on a small scale right here in Snyder. And God, you tell us in your word to pray to you and to ask you to send workers into the harvest field. I believe that there is a harvest right here that is ready, that's ripe, but there is not enough people. And so, God, I pray that even in this room right now, that as we've been talking about outreach, I pray that there some, there's some heartburn that's going on in this room, Lord, I pray that there's some burning hearts. I pray that there's some people that when they hear this, this message about outreach and evangelism, it just it perks them up because that's what you've planted on the inside of them, God, that you've given them a message that, that other people need to hear. And you're, you're already preparing the hearts to, of those who are going to hear, Father. And so we're just, we're just seeking to depend upon the Holy Spirit so you can rise up your church to meet the needs of this city so that we can take this message of the gospel to those who need it. So God, I pray that in the days and the weeks ahead, it will become evident those people that you have raised up for this harvest. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, this is the end of our time together, and I'm going to offer this opportunity for anybody who would like to pray. I'm going to be right up here. If you have prayer needs for anything whatsoever, please come forward. Um, if you have not put on Christ in baptism, um, the water's warm, and we can do that for you this morning. So make the opportunity yours as we stand in